curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Regular listeners will know, but those that aren't regular listeners are about to find out. It's raining. Bullshit. Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch of New Zealand Skeptics and New Zealand Association of Rationalists and Humanists, which is a dreadful mouthful, but nonetheless, they do wonderful work as well. Hello, Mark. Oh, where are you? Hello, Mark. Pardon me. That was my fault. <laughs> Not a problem. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks. Okay. Uh, first up, a promising HIV vaccine, but is it just a made-up disease? What on earth is going on here? Um, we do have some audio. Yell out when you'd like to hear it. Uh, it's concerning Charlie Sheen. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll get to that bit eventually. But the first is the good news. And the good news is that there's been a recent trial of a new HIV vaccine. And um, it's looking pretty good. So far in humans, it's showed an 80% immune response which is a lot better than any other vaccine before it. I think the previous best has been 30-odd percent. Um, so more trials need to be done, and they're already planning the next trial, which is pretty large-scale. Um, but, yeah, so far, I, I'm hopeful that maybe this will be good enough, that it will be useful. Um, and just for, for anybody that doesn't know, and I'm sure most people do understand this already, um, the HIV virus is a, a virus that um, was first discovered in the 80s and it causes AIDS. Um, AIDS is acquired immune deficiency syndrome and this is where the virus slowly starts compromising your immune system. Your immune system doesn't work as well and it just makes you very susceptible to other diseases and so it's not actually the virus itself that you end up dying from, it's from complications from other disease, diseases that normally a healthy body would be able to cope with um, toxoplasmosis, colds and flus, so on and so forth but these kinds of things and tumours um, that might otherwise be benign can be fatal um, once you have HIV and, and AIDS as a syndrome starts kicking in. Um, so that is all pretty much established science. And so I just wish that was the end of it. But of course, it never is. Um, and in this one, it started actually pretty early. So back in 1984, there was the first ever paper written about how maybe... HIV slash AIDS wasn't real. And the paper was called The Group Fantasy Origins of AIDS. And it was written by Caspar Schmidt and it was published in the Journal of Psychohistory. And I'm not sure whether that's a good journal at all. I haven't had a chance to look up what was going on. But his claim was that AIDS was actually mass hysteria. Um, and that it was being caused by social conflict. And I guess very early on, this might have been a valid idea. When people didn't know what was going on, they didn't know that it was a virus. I, I'm guessing that this author maybe just took a bit of a stab in the dark and took a guess at what was going on. Um, obviously, was totally wrong, but at least being this early on when not much was known, I think it's excusable that a, a wrong idea like this was made public. An interesting um thought to put forward it's not outside the realms of, of, of insanity that uh something could have been like that but you go test it and you find it's wrong and move on absolutely and and for this one the idea was that there was a moral majority um conservative groups were the hunters drug addicts and homosexuals were the hunted and they were playing out group designated roles and uh, apparently the depression of 
the the victims being victimised um, was enough to cause vegetative signs of depression, Jeez. apparently. Um, so it, it, it all seemed like, I, I'm sure to anybody that, that's in the know medically would have read this paper at the time and gone, it all sounds a little bit far-fetched, but yeah. I think at least the guy was trying. But unfortunately, it just carried on from there. So from there, there ended up being papers being published by several researchers who started, again, fairly early on saying, well, maybe HIV isn't connected to AIDS, or maybe we're not being rigorous enough. Um, some people suggested that maybe the tests for HIV weren't good enough and that they haven't proven that HIV actually exists as a virus. But interestingly, for a few of those people, as the evidence started coming in that this is a real thing and that AIDS is connected to HIV, they seem very reluctant to drop their theories. And some of them have ended up becoming champions of the AIDS denial movement because no matter what evidence turns up, they just will not change their minds. And, of uh, course, that's not how science is done. Okay. Where does Charlie um, Sheen come under this? Yeah, so um, so we move on from there to in the 90s and the 2000s. It, it started becoming a popular thing, and the interesting thing here is that when AIDS denialism became popular, it moved from being in um, scientific journals and being just a few academics to being popular writers. And at that point, the rhetoric got quite interesting. It moved from just here's a here's an interesting idea and here's a proper scientific paper to this is a conspiracy this is big pharma making money from selling anti-retroviral drugs uh. um and as soon as that happens the next people to follow on are people selling alternative medicine and this is where charlie sheen comes in is that there have been several people out there who they're claiming that aids is not real or that aids is not caused by hiv and then they're saying but look, I've got a treatment I can sell you and this will help you with this disease because I'm the only one that really knows how it works. So there's a guy called uh, Matthias Rath who sells vitamins for um, HIV and for AIDS. And Gary Null has a radio show where he talks about his denialist theories and he sells dietary supplements as a cure. And so Charlie Sheen has been to another doctor. This one's in Mexico. He's called... Dr. Samir Chachua. Okay. And I think the audio we've got has um, our favourite Dr. Oz in it as well. Oh, yeah, he's, he kicks it off. Here we go, <laughs> Captain Gullible. I wondered why neither my team nor I had ever heard about this therapy. Or Dr. Chachua himself. It's not easy to get in touch with him. But I did finally speak on the phone with Dr. Chachua about Charlie's HIV status. You're the first adult in history to go HIV negative. The conventional medicine has never done that. He was still HIV positive five years after he started his antivirals. But Dr. Chachoa claims his therapeutic approach has essentially cured Charlie's HIV. This is the first person in history without antiretroviral therapy to go HIV negative and PCR zero is output back down to zero just taking my treatments. Dr. Chachoa is not licensed to practice in the U.S. He resides and practices in Mexico where Charlie Sheen recently visited him in his chase for the cure. So you went to Mexico. I did. To visit with Dr. Chichoa. I did, yeah. What's the treatment? What, what, what's being done? Uh, it was a series of, uh, of injections um, and then blood work. Um, and again, we did see some, some incredible results early on. Explain what, what you saw that was encouraging. Okay, uh, you, you can take it from there because we're all... 
our number one concern in life really should be the health of Hollywood actors. Um, but <laughs> <coughs> carry on, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so that's pretty sad to hear because that was very public. I mean, you know, being on the Dr. Ross show, a lot of people will have heard these claims. I'm scared to think of how many people will have flown to Mexico on Charlie Sheen's uh, great testimonial about how well this doctor does. And I'm, I'm pretty damn sure that the reason he's in Mexico is not because he's got some amazing new thing that is just too forward thinking for America, but because he's doing something that's dangerous. Um, but looking up how dangerous this is, I found that even worse than, than something like Dr. Oz promoting nonsense cures is that from 2000 onwards in South Africa, there really was an active promotion of AIDS denialism. Um, there was a presidential AIDS advisory panel in 2000, several AIDS deniers were promoted to that panel. There were decisions made not to give out antiretroviral drugs and estimates um, range from maybe 100 to 300,000 people who ended up having their lives shortened by quite a bit because of this AIDS denialism. And thankfully, South Africa has got better since. I just hope that nobody else is, is looking at this and thinking of instituting policies based on this ridiculous idea that HIV and AIDS are not connected. Yeah, that odious piece of work, Jacob Zuma, uh, was behind AIDS denialism. That's the top of the top of the top of the most affluent uh, nation in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so disappointing that he did it. And I, I don't think he's ever gone back on his ideas. Um, even there, there was a letter that was signed by 5,000 academics. As soon as he instituted this new policy and brought these people on board, straight away people were saying, no, this is totally wrong, but he paid absolutely no notice to them. Yeah. Hey, there's a really great movie if you want to see one of those moments that are so rare in the realm of human existence, and that is a great comeuppance. Uh, it's a documentary called Speak Truth to Power about the public representative investigator in South Africa. Oh, my God, she is one hell of a piece of work. She's magnificent, and Jacob Zuma cops it. Which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, one, one thing I read actually on the Wikipedia page about this, that they have a list of AIDS denialists who have died of AIDS. Um, uh, and that, that's a sad list to hear about, but... Um, Hopefully, you know, for some people at least, it will speak to the idea that this is a real disease yeah, and yeah. it is dangerous even today. No, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Anyway, okay, here we go. Uh, let's talk about, uh, we're still in Africa, which so sadly uh, suffers from um, so much woo uh, and it just creates such harm. They're, they're murdering albinos to stave off AIDS. In some countries, um, it's awful. But anyway, let's talk about magic and bullets in Nigeria. Yeah, so so this is a thing of having um, magic charms, and there are whole markets in Nigeria where they sell magic charms that might be potions to make someone fall in love with you or maybe putting a hex on one of your business rivals so that uh, your business does better than theirs. Um, and I think we've got a little bit of audio here of someone who was just doing a news report going through one of these markets. Okay. This is Oja Oba. It is located in Osho State. It's the popular voodoo market where they sell things that you can use to make charms and protections for like exam, getting husbands and co. Today on Bassa Box, I'm going to be giving you a tour of the market and I'm going to find out what and what I can get that can be of use to me. Join me. 
that's really sad. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, so there you go. So that, that was some of the more benign stuff, like um, a charm that might help you do well in an exam. And these charms can be, they, they might be something worn around the neck or a, a ring or similar. Um, and it, there's a big market in Nigeria and other countries for it. But this incident that happened just a few days ago that's really sad is um, one of these sellers, um, they, they talk about how they're kind of natural medicine sellers, how they're witch doctors. There's all sorts of different names for them. Um, but this guy was trying to sell a bullet repellent. And the idea was that when somebody shoots at you, the bullets would not hit you. What's it called? Um, a tank? <laughs> that would probably work, yes. I, I, I think a, a large slab of steel would do a good job. Um, but unfortunately, this was just a charm that was worn. And when trying to sell it to a client, the seller suggested first that, that how about the client wear it and the seller could shoot them. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, the client said no. The client was like, no, I, you know, I don't know that your charm works, so I'm not going to trust you to shoot me. But the seller was confident enough about it that he said, OK, let's do it the other way around. I'll wear the charm. You shoot me, and that will prove that my bullet repellent works. This sounds uh, like he might have done this before. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, unless he was using blanks, maybe. But yeah. it seem it seems to be that this is this is not a one-off. But in this case, obviously, magic isn't real. Um, and unfortunately, the seller died. The the bullet wound was fatal, um, and it was like ah. Oh, I mean, it's it's so obvious to us, obviously. Um, but, yeah, as I said, this is not a one-off occurrence. This is something that does keep happening. So in January this year, um, a man in Nigeria purchased a bulletproof potion. And he went out after he'd purchased it and drunk it. And he got someone to shoot him. And he died. Um, and there's a really good guy in Nigeria called Leo Igwe. He's a prominent humanist and rationalist, and he's written an article just listing other incidents. So there was an incident March last year in Ghana where somebody shot themselves because they thought this thing worked, thankfully didn't die. There's one back in 2003 where a traditional healer was shot in the head, and obviously that was fatal. So this was another one where it was a bullet-repelling charm, um, and it absolutely had no effect. And Leo Igwe thinks that maybe there are lots of incidents that are happening in Africa that just aren't being reported, or they're not being reported as somebody using one of these bullet charms. It's just a gunshot fatality. Right. Um, now, and it, what I is coming to mind here is that... Um, I, I suspect this might be a marketing strategy that's going wrong. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't last long if you were testing it out this way uh, and seeing people die, seeing that it didn't work. I suspect these um, are things that have gone wrong on the con man's side. They used blanks. Oops, it was a real shot. These are the ones we hear about. Maybe, but I mean, there are so many of them. I, maybe all these are accidents that are happening quite regularly, but I wonder whether it is that, the, you know, most people are trusting enough because this is such a part of culture in some of these countries oh, yeah. that they just buy these things without ever saying, can I have a test? And the occasional time when somebody does ask for a test, these sellers might actually believe in it enough that they are willing to put their own lives on the line because quite often it, it is the sellers that are putting themselves in the firing line for the testing of their products. Um, and given the number of fatalities, I, I wonder whether maybe they are believing their own hype 
far out. Probably, like a lot of other nonsense, they they probably only ever hear positive feedback. The people who take their charms and it doesn't do what it's meant to do, they probably never hear back from. And so they start to build up their own belief in themselves, possibly to the point where they think that they can make a bulletproof charm, and unfortunately it all goes horribly wrong. Now, uh, your friend Leo from Nigeria, humanist, he's coming over here to New Zealand? Yeah, so he's he's actually flying over in a couple of weeks, thankfully, because he had a nightmare time getting a visa. Um, and there's a conference in early August, a humanist conference. At, uh, you can get tickets at conference.humanist.nz. Leo Igway is going to talk about irrationality in Nigeria and how hard it is to be a rationalist. There are lots of other international speakers that are going to be there talking about humanism and rationalism and skepticism um, in their countries and just how hard it can be. And it's, I think it's going to be a really good conference, but I'm really looking forward to meeting Igwe and having a chat with him and seeing how he's doing. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to line him up for an interview here too. That's a tough job. Okay. Uh, shall we move on to HRV water claims? Yeah. So HRV, I'm sure a lot of people know, traditionally they have um, sold a ventilation system. So um, it pumps, it's a system that pumps air around your house and they, um, they've moved a while ago into selling water filters as well. And I, I think both the, the air pump and the water filters, they really push from a health perspective. Great. And That's great, Mark. Now we know what we're talking about. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the claims. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Before I so rudely interrupted Mark Honeychurch uh, in mid-stride for sceptical thoughts, just talking about HRV, this is this water purifier thing and some claims. Mark? Yeah, so they've just pled guilty to 11 counts of misleading customers. Um, it's nice that they've pled guilty. They were charged with making untrue claims about the levels of some of the chemicals that are in New Zealand tap water, um, and obviously their filter's ability to remove that, and also their filter's ability to soften the water and to help with eczema and dermatitis. And HRV said about the case, following the Commission's original request for information, we took steps to address their concerns and immediately removed any inaccurate information based on its feedback. We take an investigation of this kind very seriously. We've put in place additional processes to ensure tighter control over our marketing material in the future. Now, they had a, a big minute and a half advert about the water filter, and I've found online that they have a, fair, a little bit of a shortened version, which has a new voiceover, and I think we've got a little bit of audio of that. Here we go. The system uses a mix of granular-activated carbon and a material known as KDF. This removes up to 98% of chlorine, as well as reducing chlorine byproducts like trihalomethanes that occur as a result of the treatment process. It also reduces inorganic water-soluble heavy metals, which may be present in your water. All right, that's the cleaned-up version. Yeah, I know that's a cleaned-up version because it didn't take me long to find the old version still online, and I think we have the audio of that one as well. Here we go. The system uses a mix of granular-activated carbon and a material known as KDF. This removes up to 99% of chlorine, as well as chlorine byproducts like trihalomethanes that occur as a result of the water treatment process. After filtration, your water is free from contaminants and undesirable heavy metals like lead, zinc, cadmium and mercury. Finally, the HRV ionizer 
which is unique to our whole home water filtration system, produces softer water and reduces scale buildup. Right, that's the old one that's still up. They said they got rid of it. What are the claims in there that are um, that they're in trouble for? Absolutely. So we had, I think, the um, the removing all contaminants uh-huh. and uh, the softening of the water. They're still there, and it wasn't hard to find that video clip because it's on HRV's official YouTube channel. So I'm going to contact them tomorrow and just let them know that it's there. I'm assuming by default that this is an honest mistake. That it's probably because it's not on their website. They haven't realised that they haven't removed it from online, okay. and it's got a few hundred views. So it's not too bad. It's not had a, a very wide audience but it would be nice to see that removed. Um, Thank God they didn't put a cat in it. (laughs) But I looked into HRV and they, they have an interesting history. I think... Some of their agents have um, have been using some duplicitous tactics in the past when going door to door and trying to sell the the product. And um, yeah, it's hopefully now because they've been bought by a large company, energy company Vector. I'm hoping that they they are taking good strides to clean up their act. But it's always disappointing to see those companies that do door to door sales because quite often it is preying on older customers and getting them to sign up for deals that if they weren't being pressured that they would never take. Yeah. Okay. Chiropractic. It sounds so scientific. Uh, We've talked about chiropractic many times, but many people are just learning for the first time that it's not something you learn at med school. It's um, the claim is that you nudge your spine around a bit and you can fix your foot. (laughs) Or cure your asthma or cancer or something. I don't know how wild the claims get, but they get out there. Very much depends on the chiropractor, but yeah, some some will go up to the claim that every disease is caused by a misalignment of your spine, and this can be diagnosed by a chiropractor feeling your spine and can be treated by the chiropractor adjusting your spine. So chiropractors are all about spinal adjustment. There is no evidence that chiropractic is useful for um, medical, there's no good quality evidence. There's, you know, that there are papers out there, but there's such mixed quality that it looks as good as useless, to be quite honest. Um, but the chiropractic industry over here, they've had a bit of a checkered history. I mean, they are they are properly recognised by the government, um, which means there's a chiropractic board which looks after them, and the chiropractic board tries to do good stuff. So they have codes of practice for the chiropractors and one of the codes is about not using testimonials but i'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that there are chiropractors that do use testimonials um this is something that mark hannah and i looked into a few years ago where we found that of the chiropractors we found online a third of them were using testimonials but there's the interesting thing that's new news is that the um the chair of the chiropractic board has just written in one of their newsletters about a worrying experience she had at a recent conference and she said at a recent chiropractic function a presentation was given on advertising chiropractors responsibilities and the asa the advertising standards authority ensuing this ensuing discussion revealed that the message is clearly not being heard by all I was particularly disappointed in discussion among practitioners on how to best circumvent the prohibition on posting testimonials on Facebook. Some very creative ideas were invented. Oh, dear. Um, Yeah, so they're obviously not being above board here. They're being a little bit cheeky. And um, Mark Hanna's written a great blog post on his blog, honestuniverse.com, about this. He did a very quick search on Facebook. He found three chiropractors. And of them, one of them had exactly this, this going on. It's 
a testimonial, but it's a testimonial hidden as something else. It was a it was a news article um, from elsewhere where someone was claiming that their asthma was cured with Cairo, and the text that went with it said a story that our Dr. Melinda can totally relate to. Her decision to train as a chiropractor also came about after finding her asthma completely disappeared once she started to receive chiropractic care. Uh, so this one is a testimonial. It, it, not only a testimonial, it's a testimonial from the chiropractor themselves who are advertising their services, but they're thinking they're getting away with it because they worded it in a way that sounds more like they're just agreeing with the article. They're not actually saying it can cure asthma. They're just saying, oh, this happened to me and this is what made me become a chiropractor. So it's kind of a why I became a chiropractor story. But when you boil it down, I'm pretty sure legally this would be known as a testimonial. And it's really sad to see that chiropractors are not just doing this, but it sounds like they're talking to each other about the best ways of doing this. Right, how best to get away with this. Oh, what a piece of work that lot is. I mean, I mean yeah. the, these particular people. That is fully and willfully uh, going against even their own regulations. So anyway. it, it's pretty bad. So all, all I can hope, honestly, is the chiropractic board, because they are a proper regulatory agency, I'd love to see that they just take more of a proactive role. That mm. if they're seeing this going on, if they're seeing that there is a problem with chiropractors using Facebook to post sneaky testimonials they need to get on facebook and look for it yeah great stuff thank you very much mark mark honeychurch public service skeptical thoughts of a sunday evening thank you it'll be up online later if you want to hear it again or if you've just tuned in and want to hear it back if you want to hear anything back from the weekend and other weekends uh just sign yourself up for the podcast you get everything hour by hour oh what's this beautiful thing hanging around in the background beethoven's seventh symphony this is the, I, officially in music, sort of in the no terms, it's called part two. I managed to lasso the oboist, who's a star performer. It's a lot of oboe in this. The Auckland Philharmonia are playing, are having a lash at Beethoven's seventh this Thursday night. What a thing. I'm going along. I'm bringing friends. Uh, if you're not into classical music, this might be the one thing that'll give you a real thrill. Uh, but, oh my God, it's beautiful. That's a piece of work. We talk about it and playing it and Beethoven. With Bede Hanley. He's the oboe from the Auckland Philharmonic. And that'll be in the next hour. Stay tuned. Next up, we talk the World Cup with Ewan McCabe. Could have military applications. You just play it at the enemy. They'll get their hankies out and put their guns down. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Enjoying the World Cup, for a lot of people, it's when they really do get into some football. Oh, it's, I, I, gosh, I love the World Cup. It's a beautiful thing. 
I didn't say the beautiful game. I said it's a beautiful thing. Best book I've read on it is by a New Zealander. It's called The World Cup Baby. It's by Ewan McCabe, who uh, works out of Wellington and dedicates pretty much his life to the World Cup when it's on, uh, trying its best not to miss any single match live. Um, did you hear my sad story from today, Ewan, when I was watching it this morning? Uh, no, uh, just remind me again. Oh, I might play it as it happened. Uh, I've got the recording here. Um, what I do is I have a news embargo in the morning and um, then I watch it with, so I don't know what's going on at my leisure when I get up in the morning. And I was watching and this happened. The last minute. End of recorded program. Please press squiggly to exit live pause. Unbelievable. Sky couldn't um, actually get it to record through to the end of the penalty shootout. So I had a news embargo for another hour and a half and uh, watched it on another replay. But my goodness, what a thing. What a trip of emotions. And Russia, an amazing fight, but um, couldn't get there. It would have been great if they'd gotten through. It would have been. Um... With respect to the Croats listening. Yes, you see, now this is Graham. This is why I always watch every game live. Yeah, fair because enough. Because I don't want this kind of um, hiccup happening to me. Uh, but look, it's, that's not for everybody, so fair enough. But you always do get these problems, don't you? But yeah, what an extraordinary game of football this morning. It, well, in terms of the quality of the football, it wasn't particularly great. I have to admit the game was better than what I thought it would be because of, there were some fairly dire predictions beforehand. Um, but in terms of the drama, I mean, it was just extraordinary. And I don't know, it just seems to be the Football World Cup. It just seems to produce these enormous Goliath chapters of drama, mm. um, which um, kind of suck everybody in. And I think that's the reason why it's got this kind of hypnotic grip on most of the people that live on this planet. It's just incredible when it's like this. And it's sad for Russia because um, they've been tremendous hosts. Uh, when I went to Russia, they're, they're not a very gregarious people. Um, they're very um, staid and, you know, almost quiet in public. I guess it's probably the decades previously, if you kind of looked at the wrong person or said the wrong thing, you could get, end up somewhere unpleasant. Uh, and when I was in Russia, I used to ride the underground there, and the people were very quiet. They they didn't really communicate much. Uh, but look, they have just had a, a, an enormous party uh, for the last three or four uh, weeks. In fact, it's, even though they got knocked out, it's still going on in some places. So they've really... Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, that's just this Football World Cup that's kind of brought them out uh, into kind of enjoying themselves in public, but it certainly hasn't hindered it. No, it hasn't. Um, and let's talk about the greatest Russia, Russian player of all time, probably. Uh, and he's a goalkeeper. This guy called Lev Yashin. And what was he called? The spider or something? The black spider? Yeah, the black spider, the black cat, the black panther. Um, that was because he wore black. He, he wore black from top to toe. Um, and he was, I think he's considered definitely still as Russia's greatest football player. Um, he was a member of those Soviet Union teams from the late 50s right through to the late uh, 60s. And he's very revered in, in Russia still today. 
he's almost like you know people like Yuri Gagarin, the the first cosmonaut in space. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, they've got a statue of him outside one of the stadiums in Moscow, and he was selected to be. Uh, on the official World Cup poster for this tournament, uh, and that's quite an honour because the poster, the official poster's uh, been going since 1930. They have one at every tournament, and it's quite a collector's item. And so that was uh, a real honour for him to be selected uh, on that poster, to be on that poster, and also an indication of the kind of reverence that the Russians still hold him in. Uh, even though he's been dead, I think, for about a decade now. Yeah. Was he allowed uh, out? Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Did he play for Manchester United or anything, or Locomotive Moscow? Oh, definitely not, no. Oh. Um, all the all the Soviet players um, played at home. Yeah. Uh, in fact, my club, um, I've got an oddity. I support a club called Ipswich Town, which not a lot of people may have heard of. Um, but in the late 1980s, we had a player... Uh, it's kind of when Glasnost was going on. We had a Soviet player who came over and signed for us, a player called Sergei Baltaker, and he was actually the first uh, Russian player to ever play in England. So that uh, kind of movement outside of the Soviet Union didn't happen until the Gorbachev years. Uh, interestingly, this team that they've got at the tournament, every single one of them plays in Russia, uh, which is a little bit of an oddity. Mm. Um, I think England are the only other team where every member of their squad plays in their own domestic league, uh, but that's probably because the English league's you know a lot bigger. Yeah. Um, but uh, and that's, I think that's been one of the secrets behind Russia's um, progression in this tournament: the fact that they've kind of got they had Fabio Capello, the old Italian and England manager. Uh, they tried him for a couple of years and it didn't work, so they decided to go back internal, if you like. Uh, with an internal coach and an internal team. Uh, and that coach, of course, has caused quite a bit of an interest because of his similarity to Grant Nisbet, the uh, Sky Sport rugby commentator. Um, he uh, played in Poland, but he's a Russian uh, by birth. Um, and again, I think that uh, it's quite interesting. They kind of, uh, in the Soviet era, they all played at home, then a lot of them went overseas, but they've kind of gone back to playing in their domestic leagues now. Mm. All right, I just want to talk a little bit about England. Um, for some strange reason, I suppose it's uh, the idea of colonialism and things like that. That, ah, silly old England, love to see them lose. Why? Um, and it's often said... Uh, even their fans um, are very self-deprecating. Oh, we'll probably lose. Oh, we'll go out. We'll lose in a penalty shootout. They would surprise everyone um, and win the whole thing with a little bit of luck and and find out that um, uh, the fans need reminding, apart from the ones that are there. It looks like they're getting behind them these days. But is that, oh, uh, 1966 and nothing else since. Well, at least they did win it. And I was just thinking, 1966... The cultural centre of the world, really, was with a touch of Eurocentrism, um, probably about a square mile around Soho. Uh, the Who, The Beatles, Mary Quant, uh, E-Type Jag, um, and you name the rest, the small faces. The list could well, go and on. And don't, Graham, don't forget the kinks who were the kind of the... The kinks. The, the face of London almost, weren't they? Exactly. And they won the World Cup 
just a few miles up in Wembley. What a time to be English. It certainly was. Um, and, of course, uh, the, the images from that, that tournament and particularly from the final um, are some of the most iconic images. You always see them, don't you? Uh, that tournament was quite interesting in that it was the last uh, tournament. It was the first tournament that was properly televised and again that was a sign of kind of the changing mm. society that uh, all the changes in society that were undergoing at the time and England very much leading from the front in that respect as well but it was in black and white uh, the first colour tournament was four years later in Mexico in 1970 but what they did is they went back and and colourised the 1966 tournament and I think that's appropriate because it was a very colourful time in Britain and the world's, or certainly in the Western world's history. Yeah. One of the most famous pieces of commentary, and probably the most famous for English supporters, is that final 1966, and it's 3-2. It ends up 4-2. Jeff Hurst gets a bit of a runaway. Um, the game is about to be over. In fact, they think it's all over, as it famously says, uh, as the commentator says. And it's just a stunning goal. But Jeff Hurst uh, explains here... He wasn't even trying to score a goal. He was just trying to hit it as hard as he could. Hopefully it would reach the car park and there wouldn't be enough time to go and get the ball back. Here we go. Now then, yes. okay, as the referee looks at his watch. Any second now, it will all be over. And here comes Hurst. He's got some people around the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. I've been quoted as saying I meant to hit the ball as hard as I could, but if it went over the back of the goal at Wembley, it would take those, or finish up in the car park, it would take those few extra seconds and the game would be over. And that was exactly what was going through my mind. And people haven't believed me when I've said that, but that is exactly what I was thinking about. But I did mean to hit it as hard as I possibly could, and that probably finished up that one. Hopeless. Missed the car park by a mile, and it went in that annoying net thing. <laughs> and of course he's Sir Geoffrey Hurst now and I reckon if England win this World Cup and it's not beyond the realms of possibility I think um, Harry Kane and Gareth Southgate probably won't have to wait as long for a knighthood if you remember what happened when they beat Australia in the Ashes in 2005 the next day they all got MBEs right. uh, and football of course this is much bigger um, but yeah 1966 poor old England they've kind of um, to a certain extent they're made fun of really uh, around the world and because they've had to wait so long for any success this is only their third semi-final so good heavens yeah it's not as if they've set the world on fire in the past but it's interesting isn't it because I've always considered them to be a very unlucky team Yeah, they, everything always seems to go wrong against them but at this tournament just everything's gone right for them it's just fallen into place kind of like a domino effect and now they've got a really good chance against Croatia to make a, a World Cup final, it's almost extraordinary and it'll be good for the game and of course good for the English uh, I'm not, I saw uh, one of the newspapers is giving out uh, a cut out Gareth Southgate waistcoat <laughs> um, so in typical English 
uh, fashion, the media and the supporters are kind of going over the top. But really, who can blame them? Yeah. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, some more stories from the World Cup in history and today. Weekend Variety Wireless. We're talking the World Cup with Ewan McCabe and the book is The World Cup Baby. So many stories in there and also uh, no shortage of drama throughout the history of the World Cup. Um, of course, you know, it's gone through military hunters hosting and things like that. Um, there's this weird... Chile hosted it, didn't didn't they? And that was with um, their friendly man, uh, Pinochet. He was, a, he was a piece of work. What was the deal with Chile and the Soviet Union at the time at the World Cup? Uh, this was a, qualifi- a qualification uh, tie, a two-legged qualification tie, uh, intercontinental between the Soviet Union and Chile for the last spot at the 1974 finals. Uh, so it was a little bit like the playoff that we had uh, late last year against Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it was was basically the last team from Europe, the Soviet Union, played off against the last team from South America for that final spot. Uh, but just a couple of months before the matches were going to be played in November 1973, uh, Pinochet uh, came to power in Chile. And, of course, most people would know the, the story behind that, but he was a, a very hard line right-wing despot. Um, And what happened was the Soviet Union, the first leg was being played in Moscow, and there was already controversy surrounding that, Uh, but that match went ahead, and it was a nil-all draw, which meant they then were going back to Santiago to play the second leg in Chile. But the national stadium in Santiago, where Chile played its matches, and still does today, and where that tie was supposed to be played, was being used by Pinochet as a jail for his political opponents. And he had, he was holding 7,000 of them inside the stadium. So the Soviet Union said, this is totally unacceptable, and uh, we're not going to play in that tie unless the matches move to a neutral country. Uh, Chile refused, and in typical FIFA fashion, FIFA failed to kind of do anything um, to to help the situation. They actually sent an inspection team to the stadium and they kind of moved the prisoners away briefly and FIFA came back and said there's no problem at all there, the match will go ahead. Now the Russians just said in the end this just simply isn't good enough uh, and so they withdrew and what that meant was Chile, you would think, would automatically go through uh, to the finals in 1974, but no FIFA again being the beast they are. They said the match has to be played. So the match was played in the National Stadium in Santiago, uh, but only one team turned up, the local team, Chile, uh, and they kicked the match off. Chile went down the other end with no opposition players, put the ball in the net, and then the referee called the match off and awarded it to Chile. That, that uh, was a game. That was an official game. 1-0 against it, Green Grass. It was an official game. And what's interesting is the crowd in attendance that day was 15,000. So <laughs> <laughs> 15,000 people paid to go and see that. Well, I suppose as a moment of history, I wouldn't have mind being there either. Yeah. I'm not sure if that included the 7,000 political prisoners uh. that have been held in the stadium, but it, it was another kind of tawdry 
of the year. And FIFA would just... I mean, FIFA should have just done something about the situation. They should have told Chile um, the match has been moved because we can't kind of put up with that. But what's quite interesting is the Soviet Union uh, at the time, you know, they were saying that... um, the people who were suffering under Pinochet were, of course, the left-wing, mm. left-wing people, and um, the Soviet Union, of course, being the home of communism, if you like, were making a stand against that. But in fact, um, it's subsequently come out that perhaps the Soviet Union were a little bit afraid of actually losing the tie, and it would be seen that a right-wing uh, team was defeating a left-wing team. So it all the political ramifications also became all tied up in it as well. Ah, uh, I see. It was a way of saving, saving face, face. Saving face. Without even having to turn up and looking like you are taking the higher ground when in actual fact it was an insurance... Well, half of it could well have been an insurance against losing face by losing. Exactly, yep. Far out. Hey, these commentators at the World Cup, it's funny the ones we've got, aren't they? Um, I'll just play you. There's a good one. Oh, the, Martin Tyler's legend, of course, but there's this guy. What a, Russia will not retreat. It's the Battle of Stalingrad all over again. Anyway, uh, and this guy. Slips the Basics to nobody in particular. And Brazil are on a break. Led by William, who scampers on. Keeps on going. William, can he set up a second for Brazil? Oh, I don't case? know if he can, but anyway, it's, the accent's not the thing. Um, who is that guy? And, and why is he there? It's like Alan Partridge. <laughs> yeah, that's a gentleman called John Helm, who's been doing FIFA tournaments, I think, for 25 years now. Uh, Has he got some dirt on someone? What's that, sorry? Has he got dirt on someone? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure, but he he even came here a couple of times when we had the under-17 women and the under-20 men. He came and commentated. This is what he does. I mean, what a great life. He goes around the world to all the different FIFA tournaments and just yeah. commentates on them, and he's been doing it for 25 years. I've That's fabulous. Say, hey, we've, we've got to go. The news is coming. We've got to get out of the way. There's no choice. Thank you, Ewan. Next weekend, we'll wrap it up. Okay? No problem. Good one. Thank See you. See you then.